People of God, this has been a wonderful missions conference. I know the men's meeting yesterday was truly remarkable. And we are privileged this morning to have Dr. David Garner preach the Word of God to us. Uh, Dave is a friend of mine, and I would like for him more and more to be a friend of this congregation. He is delighted to be with us, and he would probably not want me to say this, but Dave Garner had a heart attack, a serious heart attack in December. He had his heart surgery in January, and he is here today preaching for us. We praise God for his willingness, and we want to, to glorify God and honor the servant. Dr. Garner is professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, a post for which I have uh, great appreciation. Uh, he has long, a long, long, uh, vital uh, history of involvement with missions, uh, including a number of years in which he was director of TE3, Theological Education for Eastern Europe. And he continues to teach around the globe, but especially in Asia. Suffice to say, our preacher today loves the Lord Jesus, loves his church, and he loves missions. Again, we give the glory to God, we honor the servant, and we welcome you, dear friend, to the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Before we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of His Word and its preaching, let me just offer a couple of personal comments myself. Many thanks to Pastor McWilliams and the session here at Covenant for the invitation to be here. Uh, I believe it was seven or eight years ago that I was here the last time, and I'm delighted to be back. The second thing that I want to say is you all are amazing. I mean that. You are a warm, delightful congregation, and I am so blessed to be here with you and to worship with you this morning and let us now attune our hearts to God's Word. Let's first pray and ask His blessing on it. Bow your heads with me as we pray. In the quietness of this moment, O oh God, we thank You that You have not been silent, that You have spoken And as your word says, we are not to live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So give us ears to hear this morning what the Spirit would teach us from your word. Illumine our hearts, and may you turn our eyes and our faces like flint to Jesus Christ who is King of kings and Lord of the nations. We pray in His mighty name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we read God's Word from Psalm 67. Psalm 67, verses 1 to 7. Hear now the Word of the Lord. May God be gracious to us, and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, 
that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. God has designed the world in such a way that we are actually to see our world and our lives with our ears. Now that may sound a bit strange to you. It may even look a bit strange to you. But think for a moment all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How was it that Adam was to know not to eat of a particular tree? There was nothing intrinsic in the tree itself. How was Adam to know how to see his world, how to see his life, how to see himself, how to see his Creator God? It's precisely because God spoke. We are designed as men and women made in the image of God to set our lives according to the Word of God. We are to see our lives with our ears. This is true even from before the fall. And as we prayed this morning with language from Deuteronomy chapter 8, words that we see on Jesus' lips Himself, He knew that we were to live by the very Word of God. As Scripture lays before us, this is a God who is the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all things. He is the one that gives meaning to all things. He is the one that provides the definition of all things. He is the right witness whose ears we are, whose voice we are to hear with our ears about what He says about you and our world. He is the one true God, and it is to His voice that we are to attend our ears and our lives. When we don't listen, when we begin to look at the world around us according to our own interpretations, the machinations of humanity, the experiences that we have, the things that we see, and we begin to interpret reality that way, it always leads to the pathway of death. It is the Word of God that is the source of our life, and the Spirit uses that Word to inform us, to transform us, so that we might love what God loves and hate what God hates. We find in Scripture, of course, many, many things about the eternal God, but we also learn in this psalm this morning that God has a purpose for this world. 
There is a good and holy end for which He made this world. And what is going on now is a part of His plan and His purpose. In the world of theology, we call that end purpose, that end goal, the matters of eschatology. Eschatology is not just what is God going to do later. It actually provides the meaning for what He is doing now. It shapes our existence. What is God up to on planet Earth? To put it even in more profound terms, why is there an earth at all? The text before us this morning answers that question. What is God up to? Why did he make the world? And we see in this psalm, a psalm that is largely a psalm of petition, of asking, of prayer. But it is a prayer that centers our mind and our hearts on the ultimate purpose for which God has made all things. This morning, I hope that you will join me and I will trust the Spirit to guide you in joining us to understand, to comprehend that vision, what God is up to on the stage of earth. We must, as the people of God, be arrested by that vision. And we must rest in that vision. That vision for God's saving power to be known among the nations. In this psalm, which is only seven verses long, we see in the first verse what is arguably a preposterous prayer. Look at it again with me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. That is a stunning prayer. It's a bold prayer. Arguably, on the surface, it might even seem like an irreverent prayer. Who are we? Who are we to ask the Creator God of the universe, the God who, as Scripture lays before us, is the holy, holy, holy God? Who are we? <laughs> who are we to ask Him to smile on us, to bless us, to make His face to shine upon us? Before we seek to answer that question, I want to remind you of the experience of the Old Covenant people of God. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, just a few pages forward in the Psalter to Psalm 78. I won't read all of it, but I do want to read just a section that provides a stunning cadence of the sinfulness of the people of God and the grace of God in response. Look in verse 9. Psalm 78, the Ephraimites armed... With the bow, they turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works. 
and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. (laughs) Yet, They sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? I stopped there. The remainder of the psalm is, is a repetition of these themes. God has given his law, he's given his covenant, he's made his redemptive covenant with his people. He has provided them them all that they need for life and for godliness, and they turn against him in sin. You see, part of what makes this prayer so stunning is in in this prayer, we are asking the God who has made covenant with us, who has given us a call to righteousness, to be holy as He is holy, and we stand before Him as sinners, distorted and contorted by the sin that has taken hold of our hearts and of our lives. And we ask this God to smile? (laughs) How dare we? Unless, as His Word tells us, that He is a God who is gracious, a God who is merciful. These words in verse 1 of Psalm 67 ought to ring a bell for you. Those of you who have been at this church long enough, I am sure you have heard Dr. McWilliams preach what we now know as the ironic blessing. We will end the service this morning with it. What this psalm does for us is it actually brings together the Abrahamic promise and the ironic blessing. How dare we pray this way? Because this is exactly how the God of grace and mercy tells us to pray. As we read in, in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you, the language goes. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This psalm reminds us that as the people of God, we are to pray boldly. We live in this 21st century Western context and what has often been dubbed the cancel culture. If you don't like what someone says or the way that they say it, you cancel them personally or on social media. For those of you who are over 50, let those younger than you explain what that is. But you know, there's something right about cancel culture. We are accountable for what we say. 
Jesus makes this clear in his own ministry. We will be held with account for every word that comes from our mouths. Of course, the problem with cancel culture is the person who is canceling you does not have the right to do it, but God does. He has every right to cancel you. But what does Paul tell us in Colossians 2? That that certificate of debt that you owe has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's been canceled for you. So that you might be welcomed into the presence of God whereby when you pray, O God, be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, you can know for certainty that He indeed delights in forgiving you. This psalm reminds us to pray boldly. (laughs) Yes, contrary to the cancel culture, God delights in forgiving sinners like you and sinners like me. As we make our way through this psalm, it begins in the place that it must begin. Have you, have you really ever asked God to smile at you? Have you ever really, truly, and genuinely looked at Him and said, yes, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner? And know that in Christ, that gracious promise of forgiveness is such that God delights to forgive. I think it's important for us to begin here as the psalm does because for us to understand the rest of what comes, we must have our minds and hearts shaped by the prayer that God calls His people to pray. He tells us to ask for this because He delights to give it. He is a God who gives generously and without reproach. Nothing exposes our right thinking than the way in which we pray. Nothing tells the story about you, your heart, and your life, my heart and my life, than the way in which I pray is my word aligned with the Word of God. This psalm reminds us that we are to boldly approach the throne of grace. We go there with confidence because of Christ Jesus in whom the Father smiles on you and on me. Pray boldly, the psalmist calls us there first. Then, verse 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. The psalmist knew that God's might is shown in the strength that He displays to save sinners. 
You see, the ironic blessing was no mere wish list. It was a calling to trust, to trust in the God of heaven that his arm is strong to save and his hand is gentle to receive you where you are. He is a God who is mighty to save. His saving power, verse 2, among all the nations. Note that the psalmist moves seamlessly from your salvation to the salvation of the nations. In other words, the, the, the goal of your salvation is not that God pours living water into a pool that as it receives water and does not dispense it, begins to stink because it stagnates. The image here is that we who receive the smile of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God in Christ, that we are actually the ones through whom the message of this God, the message of this salvation will be known to the nations. This is a message that is not only for you, but is to come through you. Embedded in the receiving of grace is an embrace of the generosity of grace. If you have not done so, I encourage you to pick up some of the works written by a fairly new author by the name of Pierce Hibbs. One of his books that came out a couple of years ago is entitled The Book of Giving. Now, yes, I work for Westminster Theological Seminary, and this is not a, a moment of philanthropy. I thought the book it was a little bit misnamed, but it is a delightful read. It is actually a book on the Trinity. It's a book that describes the, the glorious intra-relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Pierce lays in, in beautiful biblical contours how God in His nature is a God who gives. He gives of Himself, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Son, the Spirit to the Father, that there is a mutual community of generosity. And that when you are a recipient of the Gospel, when you receive the gospel of grace and forgiveness, you enter into fellowship with a God who by nature gives. This, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is what should epitomize the people of God. We who have been given in abundance should be overflowing with this message of grace and forgiveness to the nations. You show me a church that gets this point, and I'll show you in a living, vital body. We are recipients of the smile of God so that we can share that smile. We are not to be reservoirs of grace, but channels of grace. As the psalmist here prays, oh God, be merciful to me. Put your smile upon me, even as the ironic blessing calls us to do. That is not so that you hoard grace. 
but that you may be one who in fellowship with the triune God enter into the generosity of grace so that it spills over from you. This psalm then calls us to pray boldly and to trust fully as Gerhardus Voss has put it helpfully in his definition of faith, that faith is a sympathetic absorption in the things of God. That your heart is, is so filled with grace. You're so sympathetic with the voice and Word of God that it changes your disposition. It changes your attitude. It changes your life. It changes your goals. That your way may be known on earth, the psalmist puts it. Your saving power among all the nations. It's one thing to pray boldly, but does your life evidence that sympathetic absorption in the things of God so that you take on that spirit of generosity that is to characterize the people of God? We have been given, therefore we delight to give. That's the essence of of the mission heart that is revealed in this text for us. It actually reaches its culmination in verses 3 through 5. Having just declared that the prayer of the people of God is that as we ask for the smile of God, that that smile might be known upon the nations It presses further in verses 3 through 5. You'll note in your text, verses 3 and 5 are identical. They actually provide a bookend on the very centerpiece of this psalm. This psalm is is what they call a chiastic psalm, where verses 1 and 7 and 2 and 6 actually reflect one another. Then 3 and 5, and then at the center of the psalm is verse 4. It's actually called a menorah pattern psalm as well. Because with its seven verses, what is at the center of the psalm is that center light of the menorah. Not unrelated from the text that we just read in Revelation chapter 5 this morning. But look at verses 3 through 5 now. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This section of the psalm lays out a stunning vision. As the psalm reaches its crescendo, as the ascension to this crescendo beginning in verses 1 and 2 reaches its pinnacle, it defines for us, don't miss this, it defines for us the very purpose of God, the very heart of God for the history of the universe. 
Psalm 67 is arguably not only the high point of missions in the Old Testament, perhaps in the entirety of the Scriptures, because it lays for us in summary fashion the reason for existence itself. It lays before us that this is why God created the world. You'll see Paul unpack this in Ephesians 1, 3-14 in similar fashion. That God has set His affection on His people and has deemed that He will reach the nations. Abram, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But note something perhaps even more stunning than what we saw in verse 1 with that bold prayer. If it seemed even risky or irreverent to ask God to smile on us, look at verse 4. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Note that the psalmist finds comfort Injustice. Many of us long for justice, but our view of justice is when somebody else gets their due dessert, not we. The psalmist though understands that this God who is the creator of all things, sustainer of all things, who has a purpose for the universe that is redemptive in character, is a God who is both just and the justifier of the wicked, as Paul will put it in Romans chapter 3. <laughs> Think about this. When you, when you use the words of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and merciful to forgive us. Wait, no, that's not what it says, is it? That He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What this psalm anticipates is the coming of that second Adam, that last Adam who obeys the will of God fully, who lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, who delights to do the will of His heavenly Father, who was the just one, the righteous one who died for the ungodly. See, the essence of the forgiveness of sin is the just payment for the sins of the people of God from all tribes, tongues, and nations in and through the efficacy, the satisfaction, the whole sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. This is why the nations on that final day which we read about from Revelation this morning when all the people from tribes, tongue, and nations gather around the throne, we will celebrate the mercy of God and we will celebrate the justice of God. You see, this God puts fear in the eyes of the unjust and He wipes away the tears from the eyes of the justified. 
He puts fear in the hearts of the unjust, but wipes the tears away from the eyes of the justified. Have you ever dared, as you've gone to that throne of grace and asked God for mercy, have you asked Him as well for you to trust in His justice, to rest not only in His kindness, but in His righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, indeed, justice and peace kiss each other in this beloved Son. There are a number of statements in this psalm that are repeated. Some of it might even seem repetitiously redundant all over again. But that repetition is for your reminder, for your reminder about God's grace, His mercy, His saving power to the nations that comes to you and is indeed to come as well through you. See, the heart of God, His purpose on earth is that the people from the nations will worship and be glad and sing for joy. As I was listening to those young ones this morning singing fairest Lord Jesus, I was thinking about this text. <laughs> and, I, and I was envisioning as they were singing in their, their precious voices, Imagining that day, that final day, when Jesus Christ comes back, and dear ones, He is. He is coming back, and those tears that you endure now will be wiped away forever. But as they were singing, I was mindful of the the great delight, the rapture, as it were, of singing with people that God has redeemed from the nations through the ages gathered around that throne. See, that's the purpose of God for the universe. That's the purpose of God for you. You want to know why you're here? And I don't just mean here this morning. Why are you on earth at all? So that God might show His saving power to you and through you. Where we become instruments on that divine errand of mercy in which we proclaim this gospel message of the smile of God on sinners, the saving might of God so that the nations will gather, they will be glad and sing for joy. What are you living for this morning? What is it that gets you up each day? What is it that brings joy to your soul? If it is anything other than the purpose of God, dear ones, it is time to repent. The goal of this psalm this morning for us as the people of God is that our hearts will be brought in alignment with the heart and purposes of God. Oh yes, pray boldly, trust fully, and thirdly in verses 3 through 5, 
desire rightly? Does, does your heart long for the things that God loves? The salvation of the nations. How tempting it is for us to be absorbed with other things. Oh, God has given us so many things to richly enjoy. This is not a call to become a monk. But it is a call to submit your hearts and your desires, your very lives, and the stewardship of your time to the things that God says He loves. Are your desires aligned with the desires of God? Do you long for your unbelieving neighbor to know the joy of the salvation that is in God in Christ? Do you long for that? Do you pray for that? This psalm calls us to make God's ultimate end on earth be our ultimate end in our own hearts. This psalm ends in verses 6 and 7. The mood changes here. Verses 1 through 5 use a particular verbal form that in he, the Hebrew grammar we call the jussive. The jussive is really a, a, an expression of desire. It's, it's, it's a prayer. It's a petition. And in some cases would actually be a call to action. And there's a redundancy of that. There's a, there's a call to think a particular way, to desire a particular way, and then to pray a particular way. But then in verses 6 and 7, the mood changes. Look at verse 6. The the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And then again, with the cadence that we see throughout this psalm, let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Note, to this agrarian community, this agrarian culture who are mindful in the very way that Paul uses this metaphorically in the sowing of the seed of the gospel. There are those who plant, there are those who water, but the Lord provides the growth and the harvest. That's His work. Well, farmers know you plant seeds, you weed. In some cases, you may even be able to water you have nothing to do with the growth. You have nothing to do with the harvest. That is something the Lord provides. And this is something that the people of God, as they read this, were mindful year after year, season after season, God has provided. That particular agricultural focus here is not a pivot from God's ultimate aim for the harvest in the days to come. No, it is, it is an image to lay before us just as God provides fruit from the harvest, the wheat from the harvest, God will do what He says He will do. Let me put it negatively. 
God cannot not do what he says he's going to do. Now, that's terrible grammar, but it is great theology. God cannot not do what he says he's going to do. God God is a God whose word is his act. There is no discrepancy between what God says he will do and what he does, for it is of his character, of his essence to deliver. And as this psalm ends, it reminds us of the certainty of the purposes of God on this earth. Now, how is that relevant to you and me? Well, we now live and appoint in history after the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We live at a point in history in which the Deliverer Himself has already come. The one who is the the, the Lord of the nations has come and His redemptive work has been accomplished. And yet we're still awaiting the return of that Son. Some of us treat faith a bit like our IRA. We make deposits now. We have to wait forever for any return. That is not a biblical view of faith. The God who calls us to trust Him, the God before whom we, to whom we pray boldly, the God whom we are to trust fully, the God whose desires are to shape our desires is a God who tells us here in verses 6 and 7, rest. Rest securely. My provisions are full. They are certain. And I cannot not do what I told you I'm going to do. You want to talk about a good investment? Imagine if your portfolio was 100% certain for a million percent growth. This investment is. This is an investment that cannot fail. Rest securely because God shall bless us. People of God, There are many reasons that our culture and society tell you to treat your faith as a private matter. Oh yes, your faith is a very personal matter, but it is not a private one. Our society and culture will also tell you that people of other religions, other faiths, other nationalities are your enemies. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are members of the family of God that is going to be made up of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Those that are bound into the unbelief of Islam, the terrorists in Islam, these are people for whom you and I must pray. They are not to be the objects of our ridicule and our scorn and our mockery. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts must lead us to a place in which we do not hate President Xi of China. We pray for him. What if you and I were so captured by the heart of God as revealed in this psalm that we lived every moment consciously that the name of God, that His saving arm, His saving power, that that very reality would govern our every thought and our every act. That's what this psalm calls us to do. This is a psalm that calls us to boldly ask God to smile on us, to boldly ask God to smile on our enemies so that they too may be part of that chorus that is glad and sings for joy. Oh, may our passions, our zeal, our priorities, our investments be shaped around the purposes of God as revealed in His Word. Some of you will know the name Frank Barker, one of the founding fathers of the Presbyterian Church in America who pastored, planted and pastored Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. Frank um, was an ardent evangelist, an effective leader, very simple man who simply trusted in the promises of God. And there are many, many, many today who know the Lord Jesus because of Frank's ministry. Frank also was a man of monochrome zeal. He was focused on this very reality that the nations might know the saving purposes of God. Somebody in his congregation made a mistake. They asked Dr. Barker what they should name their new boat that they just bought. And Dr. Barker did not miss a moment, and he said, I think you should call the name of your boat One Less Missionary Scent. Now, I'm not here to tell you you should not have a boat. Frank is no longer here to tell you you shouldn't have a boat either because he's now in glory. But he might have said that. What I am telling you is that that is the kind of zeal and passion that ought to characterize the people of God. That we pray boldly, we trust fully, we desire rightly and rest securely in the purpose and promise of God. You, dear ones, this morning are the recipients of God's grace. Are you a reservoir or are you a stream, a channel of the living water that has been poured out for you? Charles Plummer, the Puritan writer, put it this way in his commentary on the Psalter. Without God's blessing, we are nothing. Without His love, we die. 
And without a sense of it, we wither. As those this morning who are reminded afresh of the saving power of God, may we delight in God's blessing in such a way that we have a zeal for His glory, a zeal for His purpose, and a zeal that the nations of the earth would be glad and sing for joy. For He, our God, in Christ, judges the peoples with equity and guides the nations on earth. God be praised. Let's close. Great God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have spoken Forgive us, O God, for the way in which we have turned a deaf ear to Your Word and have made our own priorities to supplant Yours. Our hearts are so tempted to usurp Your kingly authority in our lives and our hearts, O God. Be gracious to us. Bless us. Make Your face to shine upon us that Your saving power might be made known to the nations. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed Lord of the nations. Amen.